Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. My name is Scott Powell. He is a doctor, and I'm Father Peter Musset. He is a priest. <laughs> and, uh, and I have to tell you, dude, I've just come from two weeks of conferences. Uh, the first one was Seek in somewhere in Texas, which I can't remember. San Antonio. San Antonio. I wasn't even there, and I know. I do. Well, that's that. It was awesome. I cannot <laughs> tell you how many people came up to me during the Seek conference to tell me that uh, they listened to the Lanky guys. Wow, dude! How I, many? Um, well, you just told me you can't tell me. I mean, I, I I would say that I easily fifty people. No, easily fifty. People. And how big was the conference? Like seventy five people. Yeah, <laughs> shut up, Saga. You know exactly how big it was. 12,000 people. 13,000? 12,500. 12,500. Right in the middle. Um, but dude, I, so many religious listen to us. Really? Oh, yeah. It's oh. awesome. I, I just have, love all of you and all of you who said hi. I just am so thankful that you took the time and took selfies and uh, there was there <laughs> was selfies taken with you. Yeah, there was nice. one gal who who like literally was walking along and I was talking to somebody. She heard my voice and spun her. She's like, "You're like a guy." Oh wow! And they, none of them had seen my face and they were hearing my voice and like it was. Were they prepared for the face that met them? Um, yeah, well, I, I kept on telling them I have face for radio, and they were like, no, you look nice. You I was <laughs> I was really just fishing for compliments. <laughs> I hate to even I hate to even be so brutally honest, but I just wanted people to tell me that. Because I, I got pink eye. Oh, sick. And so, like, I, I had, like, one bad eye going, and, like, dude, times are hard, man. Face for radio. Dude, that's that's what you have. So You do talk about your man bun and your beard on, on air a lot. <laughs> so people could deduce. <laughs> Dude, I got a tweet that was like tweeted in front of the whole 13,000 crowd. It was like, I saw a priest with a man bun today. My life is complete. <laughs> and like, Out of like hundreds and hundreds of priests, are you the only one there with a man bun? Oh, yeah, dude. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm I mean, I know one. that it's a rarity. But the only one? The only 300 priests. And wow. Like, but like by far the longest hair hippie <laughs> priest. It's wonderful. So It is wonderful. Well, uh, you guys, let's jump in. Uh, for all of you who uh, maybe are getting introduced to the podcast for the first time in the new year, you decided to take your faith formation seriously. Mm. We recommend you go to another podcast. No, come on. <laughs> Enough. I, I know. Come on. That's what, that's what we're known for is good self-deprecating humor. Yeah. Well, we should be. Yeah, it is. <laughs> we have now, but, in, oh. but we're not. <laughs> that was so self-deprecating, yeah, even in its implication. I was very proud of you. <laughs> oh, that's just my modus operandi. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is now the exciting ordinary time <laughs> that we've entered into, uh, dude. It's so. This is so ordinary. so ordinary. Yeah. Every year, Father Peter, what is it? mean that it's ordinary time does it just mean it's dull boring time yes that's exactly what it <laughs> no, is Scott, it's actually called ordinal time because we number the days <laughs> and it's not just one two three but first second third fourth that's <laughs> what ordinal numbers are i they do, i do always appreciate that because i've always been a little bothered by just being it's ordinary <laughs> but that's not what it means it means that it's numbered in a certain way i think they should call it ordinal time it would actually be uh more confusing <laughs> Slightly, but maybe people would dig into it. Well, nicely, well, we have the second Sunday in ordinal time. Yeah, which is weird because last Sunday wasn't the first Sunday it was of ordinal time, but that's a different... It was the epiphany, and then Monday was baptism of the Lord, which is like everything was compressed. It was amazing. Do we even have a first Sunday of ordinary time? It was the epiphany this year. No, there is no first Sunday. Okay, that's time. what I mean. There, like, there's as no, no, such. Which qua, is so funny first Sunday, because... Qua first Sunday. Because... 
if it's counting time, I know. Then there is no first in it's the ordinals. Times. I know. It's strange. Dude, what? It's like there's no year zero. Dude. But there is a year one, so that doesn't There add. is a patient zero. Anyway, it is. <laughs> I was trying to think of a, a, a reference to the, that movie. Our first reading from the second Thanks, ordinal man. Sunday of Thanks time. Thanks for catching me. <laughs> yeah, is Isaiah 49, mm. verses 3, 5 to 6. We skipped verse 4, which is the one I want to talk about. <laughs> it just jumps right over it. <laughs> I didn't read it. I, it. It totally jumps right over. And there's a good re- Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. All that soon. Our responsorial psalm is Psalm number 40, verse 2, 4, 7 through 8, 8 through 9, and 10. And the response itself is coming from 8A and 9A, spliced together. Dude, just like this podcast. And it No, this is a holistic unity. <laughs> and then our second reading is from the Corinthians first. Just the greeting, though. Yeah, chapter, dear Corinthians, dear Corinthians. <laughs> That's basically all we get. I know it's really funny. I actually once gave a Bible study on this, uh, just no, the introduction. I, there's a lot packed in here. I mean, I think there's a good reason that this is here. Thank you. You bet. Our gospel is coming from the Gospel of John, the beginning of John, chapter one, verse twenty-nine through thirty-four. Dude, so Isaiah, dude, I think we read from Isaiah more than any other book in the liturgy at all. I mean, like I, I'm like this is what the nineteenth year that we've been doing this and um <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I am like so struck that I've never studied Isaiah as a comprehensive whole but yet we've studied it in pieces for our, our, like most of this podcast. At the risk of sounding cynical, it's almost impossible to study Isaiah as a unified whole. It's so difficult. <laughs> it's so hard. I remember when teaching a class on Isaiah and it was it was the hardest class I've ever taught. Because I was like, I don't understand how this fits together. I mean, I understand how it fits together, but it's one of the least linear books in the Bible. And oh. this is sort of the genius of the author, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, we're today in uh, Isaiah chapter 49, which is what is known as the second servant song. It's a lot oh. of uh, alliteration. Second there. servant song. Second servant song. Second servant song. Second servant song. Sells seashells by the sea. The second servant song. Sells seashells by, by the seashore. By the seashore. <laughs> Uh, the second sermon, so there, there's this series of psalm, songs, my goodness, this is difficult today. <laughs> it, it is. A series of songs or hymns about the servant who will come, who represents and embodies Israel. And we get the second one today. So remember, I, Isaiah, oh man, this is like a, a broken record. Good news, bad news, right? But even, we, I, sp- I feel like we spent the first three years of the podcast with me repeatedly saying, Isaiah is split into two parts. First half of the book is all the bad news. Israel has sinned. Uh, she's been unfaithful to the law. She's going to be um, punished. And then the second half is all the good news. God will restore you. Everything's going to be okay. Everything will be glorious. But even that is not as clear cut than that because there's all sorts of warnings um, spread out. through. It, the first half isn't strictly warning and punishment. And the second half isn't strictly glory and restoration. Both are actually intermingled throughout. So... And, and maybe this is something that's just part and parcel to the Christian life. You can't have the good news without the bad news, and you can't have the bad news without the good news. Right. You can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday, and you can't have Good Friday without Easter Sunday. Perfect. And to, to ignore either one of them, you actually miss the unified whole. You miss the picture here. And that's why I want to talk about the verse that's been skipped this week. Okay, talk Because it's me. the bad news part, which it, it, it's actually fascinating to me. So I'm going to read it from my Bible just so we get the, the whole. Um, do 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 where are we? Oh, we start in verse 3, don't we? 
You know, I'm just going to read it from verse one, just because the context is kind of cool. I like this passage. Dude, I'm with you. It says, listen to me, you islands. Okay. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me, and from my birth he made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. So this is the servant, this this mysterious figure, at least as, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, this figure who, again, represents, embodies Israel. Um, it can't be strictly Israel. I mean, there's different Old Testament interpretations of who is this servant. In, in the New Testament sense, and from a Christian point of view, we're like, oh, well, it's Jesus, obviously. Because yeah. later on, the servant is going to be abused and beaten and have all these terrible things. But in the beginning and at face value, it almost seems like it's talking about Israel herself. But this servant comes to save Israel. So it can't be Israel. It has to be something greater than over and above Israel herself. Okay. But the language here is just really striking because it's not just for Israel. And that's sort of how this passage begins. Um, it says, listen to me, you islands, you distant nations, you coastlands far away. This is a message that is for all of creation, all of humanity, everyone, right? Yeah. This servant is not just about Israel. It's about everyone. So verse three, that's where we pick it up. He said to me, you are my servant. That's why they're called servant songs. <laughs> Israel, <laughs> in whom literal. I display my, display my splendor. So again, it sounds here in verse three, oh, the servant is Israel. Right. But it's not going to be strictly Israel. And here's what we skip. It says, but I said. So this is the servant kind of conversing with God. So he said, you're my servant in Israel, whom I display my splendor. But I said, that is the servant, says, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And then we jump back into the reading. Hold on, re- read that for me again. I need it again. But I said, so God said, you're my servant. Okay. And I responded as the servant, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with the Lord. Sounds like Job in like a profound sense. It totally does. Well, let me just finish it, and then we'll go from there. And now the Lord says, who for, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Jacob is shorthand for uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And gather Israel back to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of my Lord, and my God has been my strength. Is that where we end? Oh, then one more verse. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also, echoing the first verse, make you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So let's put this together. So you said it reminds you of Job. Think about a servant of Israel, someone who represents Israel, whose name and whose salvation is going to go to the coastlands, to the ends of the earth, and who will certainly appear as though he labored in vain and failed. John the Baptist. <laughs> there, are, there are echoes of John the Baptist. Here. No, no. I mean, it's like so Jesus, it's as clear as the light is. But I, I was reading through this earlier and I was like, well, why does the church skip verse four? And I don't know why the church skips verse four. Probably because it requires a little more unpacking. Yeah. But if you read it with verse four, so I read it with verse four and I was thinking, geez, that's a very troubling verse. It says this servant who is, you know, labored in vain. He's got nothing. And, and he seems to be crying out to God. Why have I labored in vain? Why is this not bearing any fruit? Why am I so useless? Right. And you're like, oh, that's weird and kind of difficult to reconcile. Yeah. Until, and again, it, it hit me until you think about Jesus's ministry where this is the constant theme. This is the narrative. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom and it falls on deaf ears. And then finally, he's arrested, he's brought to trial, everyone abandons him, and he literally dies on the hill of Calvary. 
he seems to have failed. Not just the crucifixion, but the whole ministry yeah. is a story of people kind of coming to him and then abandoning him because they oh, don't want to hear what he had to say. Yeah, nobody could walk with him but one. But yet, he puts his trust. So I, I'm hearing, and I, you know, this is putting words in Jesus' mouth, but I'm reading verse 4 in the servant psalm. I'm almost picturing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. Of like, they've all abandoned me. Even my closest apostles, my closest friends are asleep over there. They won't even stay awake with me. I'm sweating blood. I know it's going to happen to me, but your will be done. Thy will be done. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me because this cup stinks, but thy will be done. You know, we were having some conversations about martyrdom uh, uh, and how... Sounds fun. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, it was uh, it was uh, the Courage Conference in... Uh, yeah, in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and and just talking like talking about issues around homosexuality and transgender mm. issues, and like yeah. the courage that it takes to actually proclaim those things. We had conversations around like, what does it mean to be a martyr? How does like like, and then how do people who fail in martyrdom, and then and then with silence coming out, like how do you uh, fail in martyrdom? You they didn't quite kill me. It's no, like you, the guy in Monty Python whose arms and legs are no. Off. You you're you're like there, and you're getting tortured, and then you apostatize. Oh. You, That's and then much they, less funny than the, the reference I was making. Yeah, and then they send you oh. back, and, and then they're like, oh, "Whereas your aunts and your uncles, they didn't, they didn't apostatize, they didn't fail." And so you like, oh gosh. And so we're just having conversations around the around silence and around all of these different things, and like, like, um, when you feel like what you're doing matters not at all. It is, it is at, like, I, I hear Isaiah, what is saying the word of the Lord says, it's too little for you just to help Israel. I'm actually going to be make you a light to the nations. Like we actually don't know the nobility and the gigantic nature of, mm-hmm. of our witness. We, what happens is that we get consumed by the immediate. Yes. It's really hard not to just be consumed by like what's right in front of you and, yes. and what, and what the punches that are getting lay, laying out right in front of you rather yeah. than saying like, no, God has profound purposes bigger. That's why I What's really the long like game. Yeah, yeah. Rather than okay, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just try. But yeah, you know, so yeah, and and I, I don't. I mean, I want to be careful. I don't think Jesus considered himself a failure. Jesus knows what's up. He knows what's happening. I mean, he he, he gets. But he it. felt but, the feelings of one who a, experienced the failure. Exactly, because he is a human being, and, right. and that's a true emotion that he took on, which is really profound to think about. That he allowed God made himself the kind of creature who could feel abandoned and let down. To that w- walks through the passion, feeling yeah. the absolute, utter, entire collapse and defeat of a person who is mm. not able to accomplish all those things. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you, I, how I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her brood. But you wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't listen to the time of the prophets. You wouldn't. And like, like you could hear him agonizing Actually over frustrated. Yes. Actually frustrated. Not in sin. There's no sin involved, but to be really frustrated. He, did, he didn't go to Lazarus's tomb yeah. and go like, hey, check this one out, you guys. Man, Lazarus is like, oh, he's like cracking up outside <laughs> of Lazarus's tomb. Because he, like, he knows that he's a, but no, he weeps profoundly because he yeah. experiences the truth of, of the horror of things, and then he then he calls him out. He take it even further than that. He feels the horror of death, mm. precisely the enemy that he's going to face, precisely right. the enemy that he's going to wage the knockout blow to, is what he feels the effect and the pain of. Yes, death itself. That's that's a fascinating. That's a reflection right there. So, what's his response? Well, his response is in the Garden of Gethsemane, essentially 
paraphrased, what responsorial psalm says, here I am, I come to do your will. Dude, hold on. I can't let you make such a smooth transition. That was like <laughs> it was perfect. Uh, it was perfect. I don't and like, steal and just, that from me. It was beautiful, man. Oh. That was. I just have to give you some major. It was bronze. a great transition, dude. That was the best that you've ever had. Well, it's the it's the readings themselves. Yeah, but it is. Uh, but again, I don't know why. For some reason, it's really helping me to picture all of th- these are th- both of these at least are are in my mind put in the context of the Garden of Gethsemane. Which is just fascinating. Number one, for Isaiah to see that sort of reality so far removed from it, mm. and to see and to even have, to even have the kind of guts to hope for a savior and this sort of servant to Israel, this man who's going to embody Israel, who will look like a failure. Mm. To have the guts to actually articulate that to a people who wants nothing more than a savior. Save us. Give us a powerful king, a mighty warrior, someone to to bring us up and to save us and to fight for us. And for him to have the courage to show that mighty warrior looking like he's utterly defeated and in pain. And later on in the the latter servant songs being spit upon and beaten and abused and all these other things. That actually is a pretty courageous um, uh, picture to paint, which is why the prophets were never very popular. Let's just yeah. put it, let's put it frankly. You know, whenever I th- consider the the Garden of Gethsemane, I actually consider that is the place where Jesus Christ in the place of in in the place of with all of the priests of all time hear the confessions of all time. Oh my. That why why is he sweating blood because what he's doing is he's receiving every sin that has ever been and it's confessed in the priest and that's why it's actually that's why we go face to face in an anonymous capacity is partly because what happens is that you're approaching jesus in the garden of gethsemane to hand it on to him of which he's going to take and he's going to put it on parade um and showing his defeat and in in the final death knoll yipes I know that's, that's intense. I know it's really intense, but like, but I also think it's super beautiful. It's it's the it's the best thing in the world. I think you should always podcast straight fresh from conferences. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, because um, your your senses are always heightened when you come back from conferences, dude. And I, I'm like lit up. Yeah, you are. Which I'm surprised because you literally just got off the plane. I mean, when I, we say I, I had like, not literally, figuratively. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, you drove here. I drove here. You got. I just literally got out the car. Yep. All right, anyway. Um, okay, so Psalm 40. I, I have waited, waited for the Lord. He stooped down toward me. He heard my cry, and he put a new song into my mouth. This is simultaneously what God does through Jesus, and simultaneously what Jesus' experience is in his humanity and God's um, providence toward him. Mm. He is the God who stooped down and heard our cry yeah. by becoming someone to whom God the Father stoops down and hears his cry. Does that yeah. make any sense? Yes. Which um, helps me. The, the church has always seen Psalm 40 or has often seen Psalm 40 in the context of the letter to the Hebrews, in which the author of Hebrews is is constantly comparing and juxtaposing Jesus and his priesthood in the new covenant with the old priesthood of the old covenant, and how one has all of this bloody sacrifice over and over and over again, and one offers himself in sacrifice perpetually, and etern- not perpetually, but once for all, eternally for us. And, and that's what is showing up here in the second stanza. It says, sacrifice and offering you wish not, but our ears to be obedient, uh, but our ears open to the obedience you gave me. Holocausts are sin offerings you sought not. And then I said, behold, I come. Wow. There is holocaust and sin offerings, and these sacrifices that the priests are always offering perpetually, 
And then Jesus came and said, behold, I come. Which is going to tie, tie profoundly into the gospel. I actually didn't even notice that, but you're right. That yeah, is yeah. the tie-in. That's it. Yeah, and, and again, you can you can read on the written school. It's prescribed for you to do your will. Oh, my God, is my delight, and your law is with my heart. We've been being prepared for this from the beginnings of the Old Testament. It's not as if Jesus' priesthood is this kind of spit in the face to the Old Testament priesthood. That's what Hebrews is all about. It's not that Jesus' covenant is a slap in the face to the Old Covenant, and, oh, that covenant. This is, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, this is really one of Martin Luther's fatal flaws, is he saw this profound discrepancy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old covenant is bad and law-filled and burdensome. New covenant is good and freeing and loving, but couldn't see the connection between the two, how the Old Covenant was necessary to prepare us for the— I mean, that's oversimplifying it profoundly, but it's created, I think, a a deep wound in Christianity and the Western part of the world, is that we don't know how to reconcile that old law, old covenant— with the new covenant, we see Jesus being like, oh, look at you foolish priests and foolish liturgies and foolish Pharisees, and you guys all stink. All you need is me, rather than, no, I am, I am, I am what you've been looking for. I am what you've been preparing for. Thank you for paving the way for what I am now doing in the world. I am the logical conclusion of yes. this priesthood. Yes. If you actually trace and understand what's actually taking place in all these rhythms and structures, what you're going to actually end up with is me. What you're going to end up with is also the last line of this third stanza when you realize, oh, the law was written within my heart. My heart was prepared for what mm. God has done. For eyes that are open and able to see it, for that grace. I mean, I imagine the, 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 the first Jewish Christians in the first century saying, oh, we get it now. Yeah. I understand what all of this has been preparing me for. It was written in my heart from the beginning. Yeah. That's kind of beautiful, which takes us into the second w- Which is very much like the one ring to rule them all, that it needs <laughs> to be exposed to the fire and then the Ooh. writing comes out. Ooh. Yeah, you like that? I do. <laughs> it's kind of a weird one. It's a little bit of a weird one, you just know, like our second reading. Th- thank you. You see that transition? Yeah, that was not as good as the first one. <laughs> no, yeah, no, it wasn't. Uh, this is the beginning of First Corinthians, it, but it's, it's fascinating, actually. I think it's kind of beautiful. Okay, Sosthenes. Who's Sosthenes, dude? The um, scribe that Paul used, who was probably the one who hand-delivered the letter. So oftentimes in the ancient world, the scribe... So, Paul was I don't in Corinthians is he in prison? I can't remember if he's in prison in 1 Corinthians or not. He Second doesn't he hasn't told us yet. 2 Corinthians I think he is. I don't recall, but either way he probably had a scribe uh, who would literally help him to write the letter because there are times in Paul's letters where he'll literally interject and say, "Look, see, I'm actually writing these words with my own hands so that you'll know my handwriting." Because ah, most yeah. of it was written by a scribe. And what was done, I mean it's a pretty efficient postal service. I mean, the Roman Postal Service was renowned, but normal people couldn't use the Roman Postal Service. It was for official or military or, or uh, imperial business. So normal folks, if you wanted to send a letter to somebody, you either had to wait around until your friend was going to go to the place that you wanted to go or hire someone or go yourself to actually hand deliver it. So what the scribes would often be, is certainly for the, the writers of the Gospels and the, the letters, someone who would help write the letter and then they would actually be the bearer. So we've talked about how these letters, the New Testament epistles, were meant to be read in the context of the liturgy. Right. But it's not as if they just, so, you know, if Archbishop Aquila wants a letter read at the end of the Mass, he'll send the letter or email the letter and you'll read it, right? Right. This is if he sent Father Bailey 
Father, Archbishop Aquila sends Father Scott Bailey to come to St. Thomas Aquinas to get up at the lectern and to read the letter himself. Which is really interesting because one of the conferences, the person got delayed by plane and had their friend read their letter for them. Really? Yeah, it That's was, a, and it was a testimony. It was a very powerful testimony. Huh. Um, it would have been a lot more powerful having given, given <laughs> in person. Them. But even at that, it was like what I was sit, doc, sitting next to Dr. Susan Selner Wright, and mm. uh, yeah. and she's like, "Wow!" I that's mean, cool. it was it was really it was really powerful. But but so that's the, really all. I believe that's all we know about Sosthenes. Well, the but language also, is weird here. But though. also think how handy that is, because if you have, I mean. First Corinthians, for example, has been one of the most confused and fought over and argued over books in the Bible. Imagine you've got the guy who helped write it. You're like, wait, Sosthenes, what did he mean in chapter seven where he said, and you'd be like, oh, well, yeah, we talked about that. Here's what he meant. Mm. It's actually pretty nice to have that guy. Yeah. Anyway, that's a side note. So I what's need weird? one of those. I know you do. For my emails. Mm. Just, just hand deliver a paper copy of your email to everyone. <laughs> Here's the email. Here's the email. <laughs> Do you have any questions? Dude, could you imagine if somebody only responded by mail to e- electronic correspondence? But it would have to be emails just printed out and sent <laughs> through the post office. <laughs> anyway, okay. So what's weird about this? Okay. Well, well Paul called to be an yeah. apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. He Was he called to be an apostle by Sosthenes? Because that's the way the grammar oh, plays out. Oh, I've never read it that way. No, he's not called by Sosthenes. I know. I know he wasn't. But so, so. I will answer your question very simply. Yeah, that's oh, why that's I asked who Sosthenes was first. Oh, okay, no. Because I was like, in the liturgy, it's going to be read by, by Sosthenes calling Paul. And you're like, that doesn't work, Mr. Sosthenes. <laughs> Mr. Sosthenes. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so what Paul does... This is the the um, the introduction. One one of the things I think is beautiful. Pay attention, all of you listeners. <laughs> Whenever you read the introduction, not the introduction, the um, the greeting of a letter that Paul writes, you will get embedded in that in that greeting most of the themes that will come out in the rest of the letter. Absolutely. So he structures the greeting in such a way as to bring in all of the things he wants to talk about. So he's going to talk about apostleship. He's going to talk about the will of God. He's going to talk about Jesus the King. He's going to talk about all these things throughout the letter, but he's setting you up here at the very beginning of it. It's sort of a table of contents. Well, it's called it's for you who, who having been sa- have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy. So it's he's like setting the foundation and, and determining the end, I really actually, I really love the idea that you have been sanctified, but called to be holy. Like it flies in the face of, of like the, the foundational choice, like saying that I can claim Jesus Christ and then not actually live it out within deeds. It's like, no, you're sanctified, but called to be holy. What does it mean to be called to be holy? Well, to be with those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and theirs. It's speaking to the first reading. Well, yeah, it's the priest was the priest. The priest is the one who's called to be in the presence of God. Yeah. Holiness is really to be in the presence of God. It's literally to be like God. Yes. That's, yeah. You took it to the next level. <laughs> well, no, that's the definition of the word. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. But I mean, it's so interesting that the church literally chose a greeting to be read here. But this greeting is literally unpacking all of the ways in which the first reading has been fulfilled. You've been saying literally a lot. Is it really something different in the future? (laughs) Heavy. I get it. Uh, It is because the funny thing is. Yeah, the Coast Guard? (laughs) Yeah, what'd you do? Jump ship? Jump ship? (laughs) Yeah, dude. Well, what's funny is that it is literally, literally, literary. Literally, yeah. Do you think anybody knows the reference we're making? Don't tell them. I think they do. Okay, some of them do. Um, 
Yeah, I don't have anything else to add except that this is. I, I think it's a great bridge passage. Yeah, I, and I, and again, uh, this is my like ever uh, brought about point. He, the Corinth, is a city that's mm. very much like our contemporary modern metropolis. It's actually like a Las Vegas. Yeah, except it's a port city. So think of a a port Las Vegas, where people you have travelers always coming in and out who are constantly traveling there. We're really whatever happens in, in Corinth stays in Corinth because you've constantly got this influx of people. It's a terrible place. Yep. Did you know that there was a, there was an insult developed by a Greek playwright um, to call, so to Corinthianize meant to do really bad things uh-huh. or a Corinthian girl was like the worst insult you could give a girl. It was not a nice thing to say. Dude. Yeah, which is rough. But that's how you know you got a really bad town. When your town is a euphemism for really bad things. When your town is a euphemism, when you're your in name trouble. of your town, yeah. Dude. That's how Corinth was. Well, that's, um, yeah. So it's the fact that Paul is calling on them to be holy. But, yeah, and it's a mixed community because yeah. he says grace to you and peace. Yeah, yeah. So, kaira i shalom. Mm. So, which is... Which, which I, to my knowledge, unless... I could be wrong, but I think Paul actually created that greeting. Yes. Combining the Greek charis, um, the, the greetings, essentially, which is the Greek way of saying hi, and shalom, which is the Jewish way of saying hi, and making it kairi shalom. Kairi shalom. Which, because he's being all things to all people. Which this actually may be the first location where we've seen it. Didn't it show up in Galatians? Um, you I know, recall. you stupid Galatians. <laughs> Come on, guys. It literally does say that. Okay, let's keep going. I'm so excited to get to John. That's Because I'm fascinated by this passage. I don't know how closely you read it. Because I've read this passage a million times, and I think it was last year I saw it with whole new eyes. Oh, and um, this is so, it, it seems so, bl- bl- oh, you probably already know. It, it's nothing hidden, but I just never thought about it this way before. Well, then let's, so rock let's talk it. about it. So, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, I, I mentioned that there's inklings of John the Baptist in the first reading. All the places where it talks about being formed in the womb. There's a couple places in Luke where it talks about John the Baptist being formed in his mother's womb and being known there. And even the visitation when Mary visits Elizabeth and John the Baptist is in the womb. So, John the Baptist is a part fulfillment of that first reading. He is a sort of a servant. He's not the ultimate servant, maybe the penultimate servant, right? He goes to prepare the way for the final servant, but he does do some of those things. Yes. And even him, he, he, his, mission, his ministry, at least in worldly terms, seems to come in a bit of a failure. He gets his head cut off and he's, you know, he's done for. But he, he does sort of live out that in a lot of ways. The, the beauty of the Bible and the scriptures and the figures who play prominently in the story of salvation history is that it's like layers of an onion. There's all of these different figures who, to some degree, fulfill all of these things, pointing yeah. ahead to the ultimate fulfillment. So yeah. John the Baptist is, is a partial fulfillment of this servant, I think. So John the Baptist. Now, oh man, so much to say here. How do I do this? John the Baptist saw, so this is in chapter one. It's right after John's famous prologue. This Remember, is, John begins in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This huge poetic introduction to the whole gospel. What were you going to say? I cut I, you off. I was going to say that um, that uh, it's not linear the same way that, no. uh, that we're not looking for a synoptic reality in the same way that we, we would be otherwise. Well, it's kind of linear. It just jumps over a big chunk. Well, I mean, yeah, like <laughs> it's linear from that point on. It's very, it's very compressed. Well, it's, it's, well, you know what it is. I mean, and most of you probably already know this, but 
John is taking for granted, I think, that you know the other three Gospels, or at least you know the way that that narrative has been told, and now he's telling you all the things that were not in those. He's telling the same story from another point of view. He's giving you the rest of the story. See, there you go. Thanks. So anyway, so here's John, and it's significant that this appears right after Christmas. So we just had the Christmas story, which is exactly what John skips. You lose Christmas. We know that Jesus was born. We heard this great story, Bethlehem, the star, the wise men, all this stuff. And then we pick it up with John in the liturgical year. John the Baptist then saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, so there's John standing there, baptizing people in the Jordan, saying things like, you know, one is coming after me who's greater than I am. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his thongs on the sandals. His thongs on his sandals? The thongs of his sandals. Right. Um, so he knows what is coming, and then Jesus starts walking toward him, and he's like, Cuz, what's up? No. <laughs> what's up, it is no? his cousin. But he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which is what we say in the Mass right before the Eucharist. He is the one of whom I said, A man is coming after me who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Dude, actually, this is the thing. is I spent so much time just hanging out with that line. See, I hung out with the next one. Oh, so that one's good. That, I, I, mean, do I don't, wanna, do I, don't wanna, I don't even have anything to say about it. I just was like It's well, a pretty powerful line. Well, as soon as you talk about rank, you're mm. actually talking about a spiritual battle. Well, first of all, think about rank for a second. It says he existed before me. I know, but what do you but, know about that though? But John the Baptist was born before first. him. Yeah. So he's obviously has an insight into something else. Yeah, yeah. John the Baptist is older by what, six months? Three, three months, months? Three six months. Six months. <laughs> <laughs> a few months. Nine months. But what does he say? What's the next line? Oh, you don't have your Bible open. It says the next line, it says, but I did not know him. Which you're like, he's That's a cousin. fascinating. But he's a cousin. Uh-huh. So he did know him. He did. They hung out. They played basketball. <laughs> Jesus always schooled him. <laughs> I, my friend, when I was growing up, had this picture in his room of one of those cute little paintings of Jesus playing basketball with children. But Jesus is literally like slamming on these kids. <laughs> it's, the, it's the greatest picture ever. That's awesome. Anyway, but I did not know him. What? But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be made known to Israel. Right. John further. So then John explains. John further testified, saying, I saw the Spirit come down uh, like a dove from heaven and remain upon him. I did not know him. Again, he repeats it twice. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, on whomever you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. So here's what, here's what I'm seeing. You have John the Baptist. He receives a call from God to go out and start baptizing people. His baptism is different than Jesus's. It's a, it's a symbolic baptism. It, it's a real baptism, but... It's repentant. It's not... Yeah, but it's an outward... It, it's what a lot of our Protestant friends actually see... Baptism as, rather than what we see baptism is, even though if they use the right formula, then it is actually as it is, Absolutely. really, but not in figurative. But but I don't. there's not an ontological change with John's baptism. No. He's baptizing people, and it's sort of an outward sign of an inward commitment. Right. right? Jesus's will be different. But he, he knows God has asked him to go do this. He's doing this at the Jordan. He's calling the Pharisees broods of vipers. You know, people are coming out. He's doing all this stuff. And he knows that somebody's coming. I know that one is coming after me who's greater than I am. I don't know who it is. That hasn't been revealed to me. Right. And then all of a sudden, one day, Cousin Jesus comes walking up. And all of a sudden, this Cousin Jesus, who you've known your whole life, you've seen a million times, you know, family dinners, basketball games in the front yard, and now he starts walking toward him, and all of a sudden, there's this epiphany. And he's like, oh, it's you. It's been you the whole time. 
God told me that it's going to be revealed to me. There's been something. And I, I almost picture John with that line from the Psalm. It was always written in my heart. I never realized that there was something about you, even from my mother's womb, even though he doesn't remember that. Right. There's always been something burning in my heart, and now I see it. I mean, uh, you have to do a little speculation, but isn't that a fascinating meditation? Yeah. To think of that moment, you're like, oh, it's not this huge surprise, I don't think, of like, oh my gosh, it's Cousin Jesus. I had no idea. It's like, oh, okay. I see it now. Well, but that's why you keep saying I didn't know him. I knew him, but I didn't know that this was the one. Now I know. And he ranks ahead of me and yeah. he existed before me. Like, the, like Even John, though I know how old he is. John gets the whole vision. Yes. And he yes. says, behold the Lamb of God, which is I actually think is really beautiful right after the Christmas season, given the fact that he was born in Bethlehem where the, the lambs of God were actually uh, raised yes. up. Yes, yes. And and so that you have this this expression but it's so powerful for him to say like i recognize the divine pattern we were talking before the the uh, podcast scott mm. and and how um you god is consistent yeah god actually knows his consistencies within our lives and so what what happens is that like he is so like disposed towards what yeah. is the action of God that when he recognizes the action of God, he puts it all together. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and notice he's not saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another here? He's, <laughs> no, like, that comes later. he's like, this one, this later one. On he's ticked. Yeah. One last thing I just want to add, and then we should call it a day because our time. Yeah. One last thing though, and I know you know about this. If you, if you look in the gospel of John, John, the very beginning of John, the first chapter, the first, what, chapter... Into the, into the ch- second chapter, he sets up at the very beginning the schema of days. And he does this thing where um, oh, yeah. here in verse 29, it's the first time that John says, John, the gospel writer, says the next day. So that's the first line of this. And we don't get it in verse 29. It just kind of skips those words. But in the text, it says the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. What's weird about the gospel of John is it gives you no reference point whatsoever for this next day. The next day after what? It actually doesn't tell you. Right. And then a couple of verses later in verse 35, it says, then the next day, John was standing with some of his disciples and he said it again. And then in verse 43, it says, then the next day he went out and he called Nathaniel and Philip. And then a few verses later, at the very beginning of chapter two, it says on the third day, there was a marriage at Cana. You get the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus at the prompting of his mother says, okay, now it's time to go forward headlong into this ministry. Yes. Toward the cross. But if you read that carefully, the first time John says out of the blue, the next day here in verse 29, that puts us at day two. Again, we don't know what the reference point is, but right. it's the second day from something. Then verse 35, the next day. Oh, that's day three. Verse 43, the next day, that's verse four. And then the wedding feast at Cana happens on the third day, day four, five, six, seven. Oh, whoa. John has put the wedding feast at Cana in his weird calendar, wherever that exists, on the seventh day of his story, which puts, which is its own kind of interesting thing. But what that means is that here, the first time John says it, the next day, I mean, in a certain sense, it's, the, it's day two. Where are we in the liturgical year? Well, Jesus has just been born. The new year started. We had Christmas. And now the first Sunday that ordinary time begins again, where does John put us? Day two. Jesus is born. Christmas has happened. Now it's day two. Let's get moving. Which I just thought was kind of a neat schema 
of how the liturgical year coincides with the way the gospel of John sets out its timeline. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's kind of cool, though. And the wisdom of the church gave us that yeah. at, at this Okay, Christmas is done. That's good. Keep it. And now let's move. Don't live in Christmas yet. He's not a baby anymore. Day two. Which is also Start the moving. second Sunday in Ordinary Time. I know. That's what I'm saying. That's what Which I'm saying. Which is kind of cool. Well, you guys, welcome to the second Sunday of Ordinary Time. You guys are awesome for yes. listening. And uh, keep it tuned into the Lenka guys. <laughs> no, all of those things are good. Yeah, dude. We'll be back next week. Um, keep us in your prayers. We'll be, you will be in our prayers. And we will see you then. God bless you. Don't fake the funk. Never. Bye-bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.